Well, in our electronic age, in our social media age, there is, uh, you learn some rules, you learn a thing or two if you are trying to become popular on the internet. And one of those things that you've learned is, is you need to adapt yourself to the society around you. And typically what that looks like in today's age is that you need, if you're going to put, promote yourself or put something out on the internet, there are three things you need. You need number one, brevity. Because if people are going to l listen to a video or read a blog, if it's a book length, they'd rather just go read a book. If it's two, three hours long, they'd rather just go read a movie. So it needs to be brief, right? We live in a fast food microwave culture. Things need to be quick. You need brevity. You need simplicity. Again, if it's super complicated, no one can understand it, they'd rather just go read a book or they'd rather go to school. It needs to be fast. It needs to be simple. And above all, you need the key ingredient, which is what we call clickbait. Clickbait is exactly what it sounds. You bait people into clicking. There's a lot of things to choose from out there. Why is someone going to listen to you? So you need clickbait. And so that is why if you were to scroll through YouTube and look at all of the popular videos, they typically will have these. For example, some of the most popular videos might have a title in all caps that say something like this, get a six pack in 30 days. Right? It's fast. I, 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 it's a month. And it's just about getting us, it's quick, easy, fast, and it's clickbait. It's like, wow, I didn't know you could get a six-pack. Now I got to see what is behind this, right? So you see this kind of clickbait all around you. And so I decided as I examined the text this morning, this is the perfect text for some online clickbait. So after reading our narrative today and going through it, making sure we understand it, I'm offering you, and imagine this in all caps, I'm offering you six steps for getting right with God. The perfect clickbait. Six steps. Maybe you are far from God today. I'm going to give you six easy steps to get right with God. Maybe you know God, but you've been backsliding. I've got six easy steps for you today. Maybe you're not one of those things, but you know somebody who's far from God, and you don't know how. How can I package the gospel quickly? Well, we have that for you today. Six easy steps for getting right with God. God, this would be a perfect sermon for our YouTube crowd out there. Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7? 1 Samuel chapter 7. Part of that introduction was the last few weeks in our 1 Samuel series have been kind of bleak. And typically as a preacher, you are taught that the tone of your sermon needs to reflect the tone of the text. That's one of the ways to be faithful with the text. So if it's a, if it's a sad text, it probably shouldn't be a very happy sermon. And so I don't know if you've noticed, but the last five or six sermons have been kind of intense and they've been kind of heavy. Uh, today, things are finally going to turn around for Israel. And so my goal today is to keep things light and happy. And again, clickbait, short, easy. That's what people want, right? First Samuel chapter 7. Let's see how God finally begins to turn things around for Israel. Let's look at just verses 1 through 2. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So if you remember, the ark last week was finally returned to Israel, but they still were not handling it the way they should have, and God had to kill some of them, judge some of them, and so they said, take the ark, we don't want it. 
So what happens at the beginning of our text today is the ark finally finds a new home. And Kiriath-Jerim and Eleazar, who is part of the Aaronic lineage, is now commissioned to take charge of the ark. So the ark is finally in its proper place, receiving its proper devotion. But then notice what the text tells us in verse 2. That a long time passed while the ark was in this place, some 20 years. In just a moment... Samuel is going to come in and help Israel turn things around. But for what, what is for us just a moment was according to this text actually 20 long years. Isn't that incredible? It's very easy for us to read through that very quickly. And then to read 1 Samuel 6 and 7 and just see, okay, God judged Israel. He took the ark to the Philistines and he judged the Philistines. He brought the ark back and now there's repentance. But life is never that simple. The ark is home. The ark is back. We even now have a new priest over the ark. But there was 20 years of lament. 20 years before Samuel finally turned something around. Now, there's a practical reason for this. Remember, when the ark was first stolen, Samuel was still very young. As a young boy, he was just not simply mature enough yet to lead the nation of Israel. So it took him 20 years of development and growth and ministry before he was finally ready to kind of take charge. But there's an important reminder for us briefly here, and that is regularly throughout Scripture, God's work in ministry is slow. It's very slow. Now, it's not slow from his perspective. The Bible says God is outside of time so that with him one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day, so he does not count slowness the way we count slowness. But from our perspective, generally, God likes to cook on low temperature for a long time. And so we are reminded, and it's not just this text, it's not just Samuel's 20 years of ministry before things finally turn around. You can find almost any of the patriarchs. My favorite example is Joseph. You follow in Genesis the life of Joseph, and he has this amazing ending where he is, as a Jewish man, exalted to the second in command over all of Egypt, the most powerful country in the world at the time. He's leading Egypt, but he spent a lot of time in prison before he got there. He spent a lot of time enduring false accusations and threats of death before he got there. But he eventually did get there and he saved his family. He saved his entire people. But it took a long time. And so uh, this part of the text just reminds me to ask you, how long are you willing to persevere with Redeemer? I truly believe, and, and I don't say this because of me, I, it's what I see in this church. I, I really firmly believe that God has big plans for this church. I really believe that. I think we are going to continue to grow. I think we're going to see people come to know the Lord. I think we're going to have a great influence in the city of Roswell. I really believe that. But I promise you, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next year. It probably won't even happen a year from that. What if God called us to a 20-year-long ministry? What if things basically don't change for 20 years? Are you okay with that? What if we work hard and hard and we see almost no progress for 20 years? Are we okay with that? Because that's the kind of ministry God calls us to. I see this in people all the time. You know, they're struggling and life is hard and so their Christian friends convince them, you need to go to church. And they're right. But sometimes we set people up with these unhealthy expectations. Because you know what happens? Someone's life is just falling apart and they go to church that Sunday. And they're encouraged. It's fun. And they go to church the next Sunday. And then the next Sunday, the next Sunday, they go to church for two, three months. And guess what? Their life still sucks. 
Guess church doesn't do anything, does it? I've been depressed for a year. I've been going to church for a year. What has church done for me? God is patient. God works slow. Are we willing to be patient and endure the work of ministry? 20 years it took Samuel. But eventually the 20 years passed and what happens? Look at verses 3 and 4. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroths, and they served the Lord only. So Samuel's finally back. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if you've noticed, but Samuel kind of fell off the face of the earth for a little bit there, didn't he? Right? Like chapters 1 and 2 was this big buildup. We were learning about Samuel's incredible birth story. And then as we were learning about the wicked men in the temple, it was always being compared to that young boy Samuel. And it was like this rise in action. Like, oh, Samuel's going to be special. We got this awesome boy Samuel. And then for like two, three chapters, where's Samuel? We haven't heard about Samuel in a long time. But he's finally, he's a grown man now. You know, he's in his mid-20s, maybe early 30s probably. And he finally steps back on the scene. And what does he do? He stands for the people as their shepherd, as their leader, and he leads them in repentance. And we can see, we can get a glimpse of this, just how deep the rot was in Israel. Because 20 years after the return of the ark, they're still worshiping idols. 20 years, they're still trying to bring false gods into the worship of Yahweh. And so the first thing Samuel says is, you guys have finally been prepared by the Lord for repentance. You were a prideful, sinful people, and he broke us. He judged us, and he changed our hearts. And now that you see the depravity of your sin, you're lamenting before God. Now it's time to do something about it. And the first step is get rid of the idols. Stop with the pagan worship. And they obey. They put the idols out and they now have returned to the Lord, worshiping Him and Him only, just like the Ten Commandments which sit in the ark tell them. But then the action really heats up. Look with me in verse 5 through 11. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below as beth Car. Now, this is pretty incredible. We truly see the genuineness of Israel's repentance. Because what has happened here? This is an incredible moment in history. What, what first took place that caused all the problems? 
The Philistines gathered against Israel. And we're going to see in a minute, they gathered at the exact same place as the, as, as the first battle and the second one. It's, it's like history has repeated itself. The Philistines have come back to Israel and they have gathered on the same battlefield. But notice Israel responds very differently. The first time they just arrogantly marched out there and then when things didn't go well, they engaged in superstition. Bring the ark out, that'll guarantee victory. They were a superstitious, proud people and the Philistines embarrassed them. This time, now that they have returned to the Lord in repentance and faith, the Philistines have gathered and what's their first response? Dependency on God. Samuel, please don't stop praying for us. And they're fasting, which is a sign of dependency. When you fast, it's a sign of I'm dependent upon the Lord. It's a physical reminder to yourself that it's not ultimately food that keeps me alive. That might be a scientific, biological reality, but God could change that. God is the one who keeps you alive. God is the one who provides you your bread to eat. And when we, for a moment in time, take away that privilege, we are reminding ourselves of our dependency upon the Lord. This is the same thing. It says that they took water from a well and poured it on the ground. It's an act of dependency. Remember, these were not people who enjoyed fresh water like we do. These were not people that had sinks in their homes and showers and baths. Well water was very, very important to them. It was precious. And here they are wasting it. Telling God, we trust you to provide. It's not ultimately water and bread that we put our hope in. It is God. So here they turn to God with faith and repentance. And this time, they don't even fight. Actually, I take that back. They do fight. They just fight differently. The weapons of their warfare are not carnal this time around. The weapons of their warfare are spiritual. So let me remind you again that what you do on Sunday mornings is warfare. We're in battle right now. These are battle formations we've drawn this morning. One pastor put it this way, every single time the church gathers on the Lord's Day morning, it is a battering ram against the gates of hell. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. This is battle. This is why we sing songs like Onward Christian Soldiers. This is why we sing songs like A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We come here to fight. Israel drew up battle lines, but this time their battle lines were prayer and fasting and reliance upon the Lord. And so God wins their victory for them. God wins their victory for them and God fights on their behalf and he confuses the Philistines and then Israel is able to pursue them and to conquer them. So things go very differently this time around now that Israel has returned to God in repentance and faith. And before we move on, let me just give you another quick reminder. There's great encouragement in this passage that we've read. Because what does it show us? Verses 5 through 11 remind us that things like national repentance is possible. Typically, repentance is a very individual thing. Right? We go out into the world and we cast a big net. We preach the gospel to a lot of people and we hope and pray that maybe one of them will come to Christ. That's okay. We can't control that. So that's not up to us. But we don't tend to think in terms of national repentance. We don't think to think of terms like the Great Commission, baptize the nations, disciple the nations. Because what we have to remember is the very simple math here that we're not just saving souls, we're saving souls within a collective community. And the more and more of you save of those individual souls, the more of the community you're transforming. The goal of the Christian faith is not to save a bunch of people, it's to disciple the nations. It's to conquer the world. 
And what we have here in this text is this amazing example of national repentance. This is not just a bunch of individuals repenting. This is all of Israel gathering together at Mizpah to renew their covenant vows to their creator. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there's any modern nation, including Israel, that is parallel to Israel. I'm not saying the United States of America is the new Israel. The church is the new Israel. So I'm not saying America is this special nation beloved by God with a special covenant. God loves us more than the other nations. No, that's not true at all. That was true of Israel. That's not true of us. America is not Israel. But the broader connection I am making is that God is powerful to bring a nation to its knees. God is capable of changing the tides of an entire nation. Doesn't that give us hope? I love, we sang a hymn this morning, Praise to the Lord. I love that hymn. I love it. You know what one of my favorite lines in that hymn is? It's very simple, but it just moves me every time. We just sang not long ago, Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. That is an admonition. When we sang that, our voices rang out. And like the scriptures say, to teach and admonish one another, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we were teaching, we were admonishing one another. When we sang that, we were admonishing one another. We were essentially saying, your thoughts of God have grown cold. You have forgotten what he's capable of. I'm not saying you've forgotten it in an academic sense. I guarantee if I put out a piece of paper with a test question on it and said, is God all-powerful? Everyone in this room would know the right answer to that. I know Eva would know the right answer to that if you're hearing that testimony. You would all know the right answer. It's not a matter of simply, do you believe God is powerful? Of course you're going to say yes to that. Even if you're a non-Christian, you would still know what the Christian answer to that question would be. I know you all know that, but what is that song calling us to do? To believe it. Ponder anew. Have your thoughts of God shrunk? Then think again. Are there, is there somebody in your life that you've been praying would come to know the Lord and you've given up? There's no way this person could be saved. We've tried. I've preached the gospel to them multiple times. They know where I stand. I've prayed for them for years. It, it's just not happening. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. There's no hope for America. I mean, things are just too dire. There's, there's no coming out of this. The division is too great. There's, the evil is too corrupt. There's, there's no turning the ship around now. Now it's, it's, it's civil war or we, we break apart or we move to a new country. There's, there's no hope for America at this point. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. I'm not telling you what he will do. But I'm just reminding us not to forget what he can do. So don't stop praying. And don't lose hope. Instead, think again what the Almighty can do. He has taken a wretched and sinful Israel and he has turned them around. Now, it took 20 years, more than that, because the ark was in, the, in Philistia for seven years. It took at least tw almost 21 years. There are people in this room who aren't even 21 years old. That's a long time. So maybe our situation is a little bit more parallel to Israel's during that 20 years. But it would have been a mistake for Israel in the midst of that 20 years of lament or in the midst of that seven months of losing the ark to say God has forsaken us totally. We're never coming back from this. I mean, look at how could it be worse? See how easy it would have been for them to look at their circumstances and just all doom and gloom? But God had a future plan. So let's not look too much at our circumstances and be filled with nothing but doom and gloom. 
ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Verses 12 through 14, how do they respond to this great victory of God in battle? Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So how does Samuel respond to this great victory? Well, Israel now has been upgraded from Ichabod to Ebenezer. From Ichabod to Ebenezer. Remember, after their last battle, when the Philistines won, what happened? A son was born, call his name Ichabod. Why? What does that mean? The glory has departed. God's glory has left us. But now we have a new name, Ebenezer. And what does Ebenezer mean? Well, the text tells us, your Bible probably also has a footnote that tells you, the Lord has helped us. They have, they have been upgraded from the glory has left us to the glory has helped us. God has changed his disposition to Israel and he has changed Israel. And so he sets up this Ebenezer stone. This is basically a war memorial, like our war memorials, right? Even when a great battle takes place, you set up a memorial so people will always remember what happened here on this sacred ground. And that is what Samuel does. There's this great stone and they call it the Ebenezer stone to remind people that it was up to this point, here in this moment, that God helped us. That's why we're able to sing that song that we just sang, Come Thou Found. I love almost every time, well, I shouldn't say that, but it's very common when you sing that. People come up, I love that hymn, but by the way, what's an Ebenezer stone? Well, now you know. It's a stone of help. And that song takes that in an analogous spiritual sense. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. This Ebenezer stone is their great reminder, and it's our reminder that God is our helper. He is interested in helping us. Psalm 11511 says, You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. God is our helper. And so I'm also curious. I wonder if, you don't have to shout them out now, but I wonder if you have any Ebenezers in your life. My dad has one. I, I was always so moved by this. My dad started doing this thing where every time, he, he used to drive a city bus uh, part-time, and he, at the end of his shift, he would have to always go back and clean the bus. And he said it was amazing how often he'd find change among the trash. You know, people are just dropping change all the time. So every time he found a penny, he took it home and he saved it. And he said that I'm going to force myself, whenever I find a penny, this penny is going to be my reminder that God provides for me. And so he had this kind of Ebenezer. Every time I see a penny, what does that penny now remind me of? God is faithful and he helps me and he'll take care of me. I don't know if maybe you have something in your life like that. Something that has a memory or something attached to it that when you see it, it just reminds you of God's goodness. But I would encourage you, if you don't, to start looking for those. It might be beneficial for all of us to have things in our life that just help us remember the faithfulness of God more often. Life can be hard. Life can really get us down. None of us are at a point where we don't need more reminders that God is good to us and he's going to take care of us. This was their Ebenezer stone. God has helped us. He is our helper. So let's finish. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. 
Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel. He built there an altar to the Lord. How things have come full circle in Israel. How things have come full circle for Samuel. Do you remember? I know this was a long time ago. But when we first learned about Samuel, remember who we talked about how sad it must have been for his mom, Hannah, to give him away? We talked about she doesn't have Zoom. She doesn't have a cell phone. Like when she says goodbye to her son, it's I will see you once a year. And that's just Lord willing. That's providing we make it. But now after all this time, Samuel moves home. Mom has been rewarded for her faithfulness again. Samuel lives at home and he makes these circuits as he judges Israel. Now, before we get to our six points, I know you've been on the edge of your seat. We cannot miss this amazing role that Samuel has taken. Samuel has a role that I would argue, other than Moses, no one in all of the Old Testament can claim. I'm not necessarily saying he's the second most important person in the Old Testament. not necessarily saying that. But he certainly has a role that you could make that argument for because Israel is still in a very early time in the revelation of God. God has not fully revealed his total plan for the economy of Israel, if you will. They don't even have a king yet, although that's coming up very shortly. Very important. So the, the boundary lines haven't been fully revealed and fully developed. And so Samuel does what eventually will become something that no one can do, which is he sort of occupies many offices. Eventually it's going to be, okay, here are our priests, here's our king, and then here's our prophets. Samuel's all of the above. He's not technically a king because that hasn't been established yet, but he is, the text tells us twice that he judges Israel. He was a civil ruler. And that's why he had to go from city to city to help people uh, go through civil uh, d debates and disputes. So he was serving as a civil ruler, but how, does he, how did he start? He started off as a priest. And he acted like a priest during the battle, making a sacrifice and praying for them. So he's, he is a priest, and he still is a priest, but he very quickly, if you remember from a few weeks ago, transitioned to prophet. He heard the word of the Lord and now was speaking, so he was priest, he was prophet, now he's judge. Does that sound familiar? Because, you see, we've talked about those three roles before in the office of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He is our great prophet our great priest, and our great judge, our king. So Samuel has a unique role which foreshadows the coming of Christ that one day someone even greater than Samuel will come. And just like Samuel, he will be your civil ruler. He will be your judge. He will be your king. But that's not all he'll be. He'll also be your priest. But that's not all he'll be. He will also be your prophet, reveal God to you. And that three office is what made him such a good shepherd. That's what makes Jesus such a good shepherd. He shepherds his church from these three offices. And that is really what Samuel is doing at the end of this text. He becomes the shepherd of Israel. He's just guiding the people in all things. This is a unique, incredible authority that he has here. And it's a beautiful, fitting And Now we're going to see more of Samuel. But like everyone's life, even lives well lived, there's ups and downs. And so the author here wanted to give us a very brief summary of Samuel's life before we get into some of the downs. So that we will always remember that at the end of the day, even though there were some difficulties in his ministry, Samuel was a faithful servant of God. He was a faithful and good man. So the text has ended and God has turned Israel around and so let me give us our thesis for the text and then our application will be our six steps. 
How would I summarize this text in one sentence? Like if you're taking notes and you want to know, what do I do with this? It's very simple. You ready? God saves those who turn to him in repentance and faith. It's that simple. If we were to summarize this entire narrative, what is the narrative? The Philistines have drawn near at Mizpah again. They're ready to fight again. They're ready to win again. But this time God saved Israel. And why did he save Israel? Because they repented of their idolatry. They repented of their sin. And they turned to God in dependency and faith. And they asked God to help. God saved those who turned to him in repentance and faith. That is who God saves. Those who turn to him in repentance and faith. The difference between 1 Samuel 4 and 1 Samuel 7, the reason those battles went so differently was because the first group of Israelites had no repentance and no faith. But these people have returned to the Lord in faith and repentance, and the Lord has now heard them. He has renewed his commitment to them. God saves those who turn to him in repentance and faith. And the comparison here is important for us as we look at our relationship to God as well. For the church is the new Israel. And so this leads us to great application. How do we apply this? Well, we can take this simple, the two-step, and we can expand it into six. So here we go. We're at the very end. Six minutes left. We're going to try to get through these very quick YouTube style six steps to get right with God. In all caps with a crazy picture in the background. Number one, if you want to get right with God, you want to know where it begins, the process begins, according to the text, conviction. Conviction. Notice, go back at the beginning of the text, look at verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. These people were lamenting their condition. What is lament? It's, it's to cry. It's to mourn. It's to grieve. The first step, the soil that God prepared that would eventually grow the fruits of repentance and faith, what was the soil? It was the soil of lament and grief. And that really, in my estimation, is the only way someone really truly comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't come to a Savior unless you think you need Him. There are people who try, and I would argue it doesn't work. So, for example, I've actually had a real-life scenario of a, of a young man in a church who came into a church building and asked to be baptized because it would be really important to his grandparents. We didn't baptize that man. You don't come to God in repentance and faith because it will make your grandparents happy. That's not repentance and faith. You truly, the only way to really get to this position where you're ready to come to a Savior is to see your need of a Savior. You need to know, I'm sinful. I, I don't like who I am. I don't like the things I've done. I don't like the things I've been. And until you get to that point, I'm not sure you will ever truly come to a Savior. This is why Jesus himself tells the Pharisees, I have not come for the righteous. I've come for the sinners. A doctor doesn't come for the healthy people. He comes for the sick people. His point was not to say that there are any righteous people, but just to make clear to the Pharisees that if you think you're fine, then, then I guess you don't need me. But you need to recognize that you do need him before you come to him. Conviction, lament, grief, these are pro appropriate responses to sin. As a matter of fact, you don't have to turn there, but I would encourage you to just maybe mark down in your Bibles 1 Corinthians 14, verses 23 through 24. The reason I love that verse so much is the context is Paul is talking about in that context. He's talking about 
How do we as a church, uh, as we worship and unbelievers visit us, right? We have new people come in, non-Christians come in. What's our hope for their experience? Like what, what are we hoping happens to the non-Christian when they visit our building? Do we desire that they would be welcomed? Yes, of course. That's very important. We're Christians in this house. The last thing we want to do is have people come in here and not act like Christians. So yes, it's very important to us when new people come that they are welcomed, that they are embraced, that they are loved, that they are taken care of. We need to do that as a church. But that's not our ultimate goal. Is it that they would be comfortable? Now that too is important. It's not okay to have filthy bathrooms or dangerous facilities. It's not, it's, it's not a good thing if someone comes in here and they're scared and they're uncomfortable and it's dirty. So it's good that we keep up with our facilities and that we try to make people feel comfortable and welcome here. That's good. But that's not what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 is our ultimate goal. You want to know what he says? That when people come in among you and see you worship, that your worship will make them feel convicted. That their, the secrets of their heart would be laid bare and that they would know that God truly is among you. Our number one goal when a non-Christian comes into this room is that they will feel guilty of their sin. So in a certain sense, we're actually going for the exact opposite of comfort. We want them to come in here and know you are in a dangerous place without Christ. You need a Savior. The first step to getting right with God is lament. Lament that you needed him so badly in the first place. Now, what does lament, what should it naturally lead to? Step number two, confession. If you've got sin and you've got all this conviction of sin, you know what you need to do? You need to admit it. You can't keep pretending like you don't have it. Look at verse six. Verse 6, so they gathered together at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. They came together to publicly admit, we are sinners. They confessed it. They took this lament and they brought it to God through their high priest. They brought it to God through Samuel and said, we are sinners. We have not been living the way we should be living. And so if you're feeling grief and lament of your sin, that's good, that's fine. But where should that lead you to? Bring it to God. Confess it. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sins. Lament your sins. Confess your sins. And then that brings us to the really important thing. And we have to do both of these together because they're a package deal. Number one, lament or I say conviction. Number two, or confession. Numbers three and four, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Look at verse three. Samuel said to all of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you. So the first step for Israel in getting right to God was, Samuel uses the word return which is actually related to the word repentance. The word repentance literally means to change, to turn. So when you are repenting, what you're doing is you are turning. You're turning away from something. You have to turn from something logically in order to ever turn to God. So repentance is necessary. You must return or turn or change turning from something. In the case of Israel, they had all of these idols, 
And Samuel said, it's time to turn your backs to these things, to change your mind, your disposition, your heart towards these things. Put these things away. The first step of getting right with God is we have to repent. Repentance is an action. It's something that can be, it's tangible. We see it. We live lives of repentance. People can see that person has repented of sin. He's turned from sin and he is pursuing God. Repentance is an action word. Which, by the way, we'll clarify this more when we talk about faith, but there is a dangerous movement out there. It's, by God's grace, it's become a minority. But there is a dangerous movement out there that we on this side of the debate refer to as the cheap grace movement. The more technical term is the debate over what we call lordship salvation. And there are people, if, if you're familiar with John MacArthur, he was like a leading head in the lordship salvation debate. But to sum it all up, the people who denied lordship salvation were the people who said, Jesus can be your savior, but he doesn't have to be your lord. Because you're saved by faith, but you haven't perfectly repented of all your sins, so you're still a sinner, so you're not really following Jesus. Hopefully you will, but ultimately it's not repentance that saves you, it's faith. Right? Faith alone, that's what we believe, Right? So they would call us legalists because we think you have to repent of your sins to be saved. And that's legalism. That's Roman Catholicism. No, you just have to believe. So you don't have to make Jesus Lord. You don't have to live a holy life. You don't have to pursue him. You just, you just have to believe. But all throughout the scriptures from beginning to end, the gospel is a gospel of repentance. You must turn from sin. In other words, the cheap grace movement, this is what they think salvation looks like. Israel's over here worshiping the Ashtaroths and worshiping Dagon and, and, and all of the false gods. And Samuel says, hey, you're supposed to be worshiping Yahweh. And they say, okay, throw them in. Bring them in. There's room for everybody here. So they're saved, right? Because they believe in Yahweh. They were, they're worshiping Yahweh right alongside everybody else. Samuel knows that's not the nature of faith. That's the wrong kind of faith. Yahweh cannot be worshipped with the God. So if you want to turn to Yahweh, it's going to require the first step of turning from whatever's been in his place. There is no turning to Christ until you turn from whatever has been in his seat. The first words out of Jesus' mouth. How did Jesus begin his ministry? John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord, announces the coming of Christ. Jesus shows up on the scene. What's the first words out of his mouth? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus preached a gospel of repentance. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Now, this doesn't, point number three, repentance, it doesn't contradict faith because in a certain sense, these are one and the same action. The Bible is comfortable to separate repentance and faith. You will find Bible verses that say repent and believe. So they are technically separated. One is a turning from, the other is a turning to, but it's like a coin with two sides. You can't, to truly do it, you can't do one without the other. So the fourth step, repent, the fourth step, according to verse 3, is to believe, right? They, what does verse 3 say? Put out the ashtroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So they didn't just turn from something, they turned to something, rather someone. So step number four to getting right with God is faith. You need to believe. You need to come to him after you've repented and you need to believe in him. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You have been saved by grace through faith. 
Repent of your sins and believe in God. Now, the good news is the New Testament has clarified more of God's revelation than the Israelites had. So we know for them, repentance and faith was to believe in Yahweh. Now, we still believe in Yahweh, but the New Testament has clarified who he is for us in a unique way that we can make the picture a little bit more vivid. We can take the picture which was once grainy and and transform it now into HD quality. And what does it look like? What does faith in Yahweh look like? Repentance and faith in Jesus who is Yahweh, the one the Father sent. That's why Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas told the jailers, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. So how do you get right with God? You repent of your sins and you turn and place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that segues us very nicely into point number five. So what is it you need to be made right with God? You need conviction, you need confession, You need repentance, you need faith, but you also need something very important, and that's intercession. Without an intercessor, your faith will do nothing for you. Your faith will go nowhere. All the repentance and faith in the world will do you nothing if you as a sinner do not have the right man of God to stand in your place. Your faith has to be channeled to God through someone holy because you are not holy, so without an intercessor, your faith will do nothing. The text is very clear about this. If you remove Samuel from 1 Samuel chapter 7, Israel's going nowhere. Look with me, for example, at verse 5. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Samuel was praying on their behalf as their priest in their stead. Look at verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord, something the priest, the intercessor did. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Israel was saved because Eli's gone. Israel was saved because Hophni and Phinehas were gone. The corrupt priests were gone. Now that they had the right man of God standing in the gap, God was able to answer him and bless Israel through him. God was ultimately blessing Samuel in this moment. And Israel, because they were united to Samuel by intercession, then received the blessing of God answering Samuel. But Samuel is the object of God's grace and mercy, and it is by Samuel interceding for the people that they received that. And that is the exact same picture that the New Testament gives us of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has blessed him. God has rewarded him. God has given him eternal life. And all those who he represents now share in what God has done. When we place our faith in Jesus, that unites us to Jesus. And now he stands in the gap on our behalf. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.9, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 23 through 25 says that Jesus is now able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. You want to be saved? There is one way, one truth, one life. There's one way to the Father and it's through your great intercessor, Jesus Christ. That's what your faith and repentance give you, is Jesus. That's what your faith gives you. It gives you Jesus. And then he gives you salvation and glory and holiness and everything else. This leads us, we conclude now with our very last point. Something that is also indispensable to being made right with God. 
This again is so crucial that even with an intercessor, even with faith, even with repentance, without this, we are lost. And that is sacrifice. God is a holy God. He cannot just wink at our sin. You can repent and believe all you want, but a holy God cannot just wink at your sin. He set up from the Old Testament onward this system of sacrifice. A sacrifice has to be made. The book of Hebrews says, without the spilling of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Samuel knew this well. Look at verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Samuel knew our enemies have gathered around us. What do we need? We need sacrifice. And the New Testament is very clear who our sacrifice is. That these sacrifices were not ultimately pleasing to God. We're going to see that later on. God says, I, ultimately, I don't desire your burnt offerings. They were a type and shadow for a true sacrifice that they would one day accept. That God would one day accept. That's why the same John the Baptist, right before Jesus pronounced repent, what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus coming? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who was it that came over the hill to John the Baptist? Was it the people's priest and intercessor? Yes, but it was also their lamb, their sacrifice, their offering. That's why 1 Corinthians 5 tells Christians, you don't need to celebrate the Passover anymore because we do it so spiritually. Why? Because Christ is our Passover lamb. This is Christ. He's the sacrifice. To conclude, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's see this. And then we'll pray. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 11 through 14 with me. Oh, whoops. Hebrews chapter 10. Here we see Christ as both priest and sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That's what Samuel offered. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he then sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until all his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's what you need to be right with God. You need the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. You need a great sacrifice. So turn to God today in repentance and faith. Lament your sins. Confess your sins. Repent of your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, He will be your mediator and He will offer Himself as a sacrifice for your sins. 